Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I want to thank everybody who came out to our fall fe- festival yesterday. Were those who were there? Wasn't it a great event, a great time? Can we just give it up for our volunteers and for a great day? It got a little chilly, uh, but we had a lot of people from the community here. Uh, just a wonderful way to share God's love. So I'm grateful for that. Um, I've had two very different things on my mind this week that have been in tension uh, uh, with each other. And uh, first is I've just been like enjoying life. Uh, hasn't the weather been great this past week? Like you fall-loving people, oh, this has been a beautiful week. Like the trees have finally turned, especially over at Herrick Lake. I've been on a few walks this week, and I was just walking, just caught up in the midst of it all, like the, the, the beautiful colors. Uh, there were birds that were chirping. The sun was shining down upon the lake. And I was just like, wow, I am alive. I am alive in this living world. If you're grateful to be alive this morning, can I get an amen? amen? Why don't you turn to a neighbor and say, I'm grateful that you're alive this morning. <laughs> Man, that's good. I'm, I'm really thankful that I got a hearty response. I was a little worried that <laughs> no one would want to say that. I'm glad that went over well. So I've had this gratefulness of life this week, but on the other hand, has the news not been like super heavy this week? All of the violence we see in the world, the, the war between Israel and Hamas has just, oh, it's weighed upon me. I'm sure it has upon you as well. Uh, but not only that, we're still cognizant of uh, the ongoing crisis in, in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there was a coup in Niger. Uh, there's protests going on in Guatemala. Uh, there are still gun violence on our streets. There's all of this death and, and, and parents are, are grieving the loss of their children. It's just this really heavy world of death we live in. And that's the tension, friends. We are, we are alive. There's this miracle of life. We're alive in this world of death and on our way to death. And if you're just joining us this morning, we're in a sermon series called The Ten Commandments Today, How Ancient Laws Lead to a Flourishing Life. And today, we are looking at uh, commandment number six, do not murder, or, or as some translations say, do not kill. Uh, this command is over 3,000 years old. That's really old. But it's just as relevant today as it was then when it was received on Mount Sinai, is it not? In this world that we live in? Let me, re- oh, losing my microphone. Let me remind you where we have been. The first four commandments have dealt with our relationship with God. No other gods before you, no idols, no misusing God's name, honoring the Sabbath. And then really the fifth commandment is about how we deal with the first relationship we have is how we come into this world through mother and father, honoring our parents and other authorities in our lives. So then really the next five commandments were shifting to how do we relate to our fellow man and woman? How do we relate to our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, all other humans made in the image of God. And the first thing the Lord desires that we would never do is to take the life of another human being, to harm another human being. Um, This is so basic to morality. It's found in law codes all across cultures and time. Uh, In the Bible, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right, and to God's words to Noah after the flood. 
I mean, humanity has essentially known that murder is wrong for its entire existence. And yet, the world is still full of violence. Clearly, we still cry out for peace. And I would contend to you that something deeper is needed than simply the command, do not murder. Humanity has needed more than that. And the good news is our great rabbi, the greatest moral teacher the world has ever seen, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's revealed the deeper thing that we need. Jesus taught on this commandment in his infamous ser- uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he, what he does is he gives the opening vision of the Beatitudes, of who is blessed in his kingdom. Uh, then he gives his people that, uh, the identity that you're going to be salt and light in this world. He says he's come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And then really he gives his, his first kind of discipleship word. This is his manifesto of discipleship in his kingdom. And one of the first things his people will give attention to is that of peace. Because it was critical for discipleship, but it's also critical for our world. It's one of the, one of the most foundational issues of life in Christ. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter He wants to address violence at its core and cut it off right at the source. And he reveals that the fire of violence is not just out there in the world and on the news, but its embers exist in every human heart in the form of anger. And you might have thought, if you're looking at the schedule, you might have thought, man, finally, a commandment where I'm not going to have something to work on. (laughs) You know, this 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 one doesn't really apply to me. And, And by the way, Hasn't this series just revealed to you how much we need a Savior? Oh my goodness. That thank God that Jesus has come to pay all of the penalty for our sin so that we can live in Him. But these commandments teach us how to have flourishing life. But far from being irrelevant, this command is very much relevant for our lives because the anger and the problems in our heart, they lead to harming others in various ways, whether through our speech or actions. And that leads to the disharmony of our world. And so Jesus says these are the roots of the violence in our world and they are sin in and of themselves. So in order to promote life and peace, we must cultivate three things in the Christian life. We must have a peaceful heart, refrain from harming others, and pursue harmony in our relationships. By doing these three things, we will pour a deluge of water on the fires of anger and violence and make for peace. So let's talk about these three. Number one, we need to have a peaceful heart. We must address the problem in our heart. We're looking at Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching in this commandment. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. There's an early Christian document written soon after or even in line with the time of the New Testament, the Didache. It says, do not become angry for anger leads to murder. So Jesus is attacking violence at its root, at its core. But he, and he's also condemning our anger at our brothers and sisters altogether. The scholar Scott McKnight says, perhaps we need to be reminded that Jesus thinks anger leads to the fires of hell. The Bible has a lot to say about anger. Let me just give you a few examples. These are up on the screen for you. Ecclesiastes 7.9, anger resides in the lap of fools. Psalm 37.8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. 
Colossians 3.8, rid yourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And the Apostle James says, anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, in this life, you will feel angry. It's pretty much impossible to be avoid because anger is the result of sin. It's a response to sin, usually of our own or that of others. You know, I once did a study in seminary. I did a research paper on the wrath of God in the Bible. What a lightning, uh, <laughs> a light topic to address. Uh, looking at all the, all the statements about wrath of God in the scriptures. And what I found out was that before sin and fall, God did not have wrath. And in the kingdom to come, God will also not have wrath. God's wrath is not part of his eternal, essential nature. Why? Because it's his response to sin. It's his response to injustice and oppression and so on. So it's not fundamental to who God is. Yes, the sin of the world, it, it pains him, it angers him at times, but it's not essential to his very being. And now that, I'm sorry, and simply to say, when there is no more sin, when there is no more sin, there will be no more anger in God or in us or between us. That's the kingdom to come. And now that Jesus is here, he's brought his kingdom and he calls us to live on earth as it is in heaven. To bring the reality of his kingdom into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in his kingdom, we are called to rid ourselves of anger. Yes, on this side of heaven, we will feel anger. But then our call is to recognize it for what it is, a dangerous fire that needs to be put out right away. Get rid of it. The Apostle Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. See, when you're angry, it's an opportunity for the, for the devil to start whispering to you and say, oh yeah, they deserve it. Oh yeah, your anger is justified. Oh yeah, we should get even with them. And he'll pour lighter fluid on the fire of anger in your heart. And we start tearing people down, even in our own hearts. We are to rid ourselves of this. How do we do it when it's so easy to feel angry? Let's look at some words in the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And here's what we do. We be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. How do you put out the fire of anger? You practice kindness towards others. Also, there's this aspect of tender-heartedness. The scholar Daryl Bach says that the, the idea of eusplachnos, that's the Greek word, eusplachnos, compassionate, it speaks to an ability to identify with another from the gut, since the term splachnon refers to the intestines. The term points to this tender or sensitive feeling within us as we identify with another human being. Because when we get angry, we stop seeing the other person as human. We stop seeing the other person as made in the image of God, loved by God. We stop seeing them as someone for whom Christ died and rose again. And so we need to begin to put ourselves in their shoes and cultivate that tenderness of heart within us. And then we are to practice forgiveness, reminding ourselves that in Christ, God has forgiven us thousands upon thousands of sins. And if we've been forgiven in that, in that way, we too can forgive others. 
So if we do these things, if we tend to our hearts, if we pray, sympathize, forgive, being kind in return, anger is diffused and the fire is put out. But unfortunately, we don't always do do this well. We can lash out in different ways, and Jesus also warns us of this. So the second thing that we're called to do is to refrain from harm. Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 22, Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That Raka word means like calling someone stupid or you idiot, that kind of thing. Anyone ever tempted to do that? (laughs) What's happened is the fire of anger has erupted into treating someone with contempt. You're seeking to do them harm in some way, although smaller than actually physical harm, perhaps. Now, thou shalt not murder was understood as a prohibition against harming people physically. But Jesus always ups the ante. He always gets to the root and core of the problem. And I think we're to see the contrast here, that our our angry and our angry words, though they might seem small, Jesus says, no, this puts you in danger of the fire of hell. Like, this is a serious thing. It might seem small to us, but it's a serious thing. It's a fire. And so violent or angry language is out. And if that is true, how much more the violent action that proceeds from it? We're to refrain from harming others in any way. From the time that human beings are in the womb to the time that they are in the tomb, we are to protect and promote life. Christians are like doctors. Our first rule is do no harm. Do not hurt in speech, attitude, or action. It's so easy to get angry and to lash out at people because we start thinking that they deserve this. They've done something wrong enough to deserve it. And the, new, the news and the social media, they, they know this. Uh, there's lots of things out there, studies out there about this, how anger sells. Anger keeps your attention. And social media drives that. They want to show you things that get you angry so that you keep being angry at the other side and you keep watching and you keep stewing the anger, you're cultivating anger within yourself. And then what you see happens, and we see this even in our world, people erupt into violent action because of the things that they've been putting into their mind, the things that they've been cultivating in their own hearts. And maybe one of the best things for you that you could do is just watch your diet right now of what you're putting into your mind. Some of you are getting so angry because of what you're watching and what you're reading. And it's dangerous. It's not good. You know, uh, I had a pastor friend the other day, and he, and he said kind of off the cuff, I'm on a low-information diet. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's kind of a funny phrase, but there's wisdom in that. Because a, a lot of the information you're getting, it's cultivating anger and bitterness, and that leads to a lot of the dissension that we see in our, in our world. So be discerning about that. Maybe you need to cut back. Maybe you need to cut it out altogether. This is a dangerous fire that we have to pay attention to. Because we begin to think, in our anger that, man, these people, they, they deserve this. They are so wrong. I can't believe they did that. That was so rude. What they said was so mean. They need to be taught a lesson. And so we desire to get even. And that's called revenge. But the Bible says we're not to take revenge. Let me ask you, do you want God to treat you as your sins deserve? Would you like it for God to show you mercy and forgiveness? Have you ever asked God for a second chance? Do you believe in revenge or redemption? 
That's our choice. What's fascinating to me is that this prohibition of do not murder comes to us from the lips of Moses, who's preaching to the next generation. Some of you might remember that uh, before Moses became the leader of God's people, before the Exodus, uh, as a Hebrew boy, he was saved from a murderous decree uh, that Pharaoh wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys, and he was saved from that, thank God. But then he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up in the palace. And then he went on to see the injustice happening to his people. And it says this in Exodus 2. I have this up for us. Maybe I don't. Never mind. Just listen to me. (laughs) One day after Moses had he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and he thought, what I, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he did try to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Moses had committed this horrible crime that, as we've said, humanity has basically known as wrong for our entire history. People could easily have said, he deserved to die. He deserved to die for what he had done. Violence deserves more violence. But Moses, he fled to the wilderness for 40 years. Who knows what kinds of feelings of regret or remorse came over him in those 40 years, four decades of thinking about what he had done. And when God called Moses, he did not just redeem his people out of Egypt. He redeemed Moses too. He gives Moses a second chance. I'm guessing Moses, even as he wrote these words, he felt deep remorse for what he had done all those years ago. But God showed him grace. God showed him grace. Too often we are easy to condemn people that God is not done with, that God wants to show mercy on, that God wants to use. What would have happened if Joseph's brothers, brothers did decide to kill him and said, send him off to Egypt, said they sent him off to Egypt? Where would that redemption have been if they had gone through with their plan? What about the apostle Paul who participated in murder? If people had said he deserved to die as well, where would the rest of our New Testament be? Like three quarters of it. Man, but God, even Paul says, God used him as an example that he is so patient and gracious upon every person that's ever lived. He invites every person to repent so, that we, can have mer- so we can show that mercy too. But we humans, we humans, we often find kind of malicious ways to justify anger and violence. But I believe God dreams of a world where violence will be no more. Like Martin Luther King Jr. saying, I have a dream. Remember this from the prophet series in Isaiah 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Hallelujah! Isn't that amazing? And I believe that this is what we should be working towards in our broken world. Because Jesus says, if someone becomes our enemy, the Lord Jesus counts us to love them to pray for them, to be good to them and kind to them. Martin Luther says we must not kill neither with hand, 
heart, mouth, signs, gestures, help, nor counsel. We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. And do you see how Luther adds the the positive sentiment of this? We're not to do any harm, but we're also to do as much good and promote their well-being as much as we can. So we don't fight violence with more of the same. That just adds more fuel to the fire of violence. As the Apostle Paul said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can't fight fire with fire. You have to fight fire with water, the water of life. So not only are we to avoid all harmful actions and speech, attitudes of hatred and anger and more, we're called to promote this well-being of others. This includes our act of, of charity and kindness. It's very interesting how the Apostle John, he also connects murder with promoting the well-being of others. Look at this from 1 John. All who hate a brother or sister murders. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. When we feed the hungry, when we give the thirsty drink, when we clothe the naked, when you help the homeless, when you welcome the refugee and the stranger, when we help the sick to get the care that they need, when we help those in prison, what are we doing? We're protecting life. We're promoting well-being. We're promoting life. And we're also, if I may say, we're helping prevent more violence because it is often the desperation of poverty, the desperation of being a refugee, the desperation of, uh, of oppression that hopeless situations emerge and violence erupts. So when we take care of God's world, when we take care of his people, we're actually not only promoting their well-being, but we're preventing further violence. And this is good. So we are to cultivate a peaceful heart. We're to refrain from harm. And finally, we are to pursue harmony with others. Jesus has just said, anger and harmful speech is putting you in the danger of the fire of hell. This is serious. So what does he tell us to do? What's his solution? He says, verse 23, Therefore, because of this, because of the danger of anger, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. This is an interesting uh, teaching. The worshiper has recognized, as often, in the presence of God, you recognize things. Your mind is open to things, right? You come to worship and you start thinking of things that you didn't think about before. So the person has come to worship and they remember, they recognize that, man, this person has something against me. The, the fire of anger and bitterness is in this person. It's, and it's not simply a difference of opinion. It's, there, there is a danger here. There's bitterness. There's anger. Scott McKnight writes, In the word something, we must keep our eyes on the brother or sister who is angry toward us or feels angered by the things we have done that offended them. And we need to become aware of our own anger. So we recognize the danger. There's something going on here. And Jesus is speaking to disciples in Galilee, right? He's, this is the Sermon on the Mount. They're in Galilee. And he's talking about a worshiper 
who has gone down to Jerusalem, which is like a week's journey. And they've taken an animal on a week's journey all the way down to the temple. They finally make it to the Holy of Holies, or not the Holy of Holies, but to where they're offering the sacrifice, right? And he says, go back, take the week's journey back to Galilee, be reconciled, and then come back and take another week to offer your gift. That's how important this was to Jesus. Hyperbole, perhaps, but to make the point that this takes precedent even over the offering of a gift in worship. That's how important reconciliation, peace, and harmony are to Jesus. Resolve and reconcile with your brother and sister. Do it quickly. Run towards it. There's a book that I've recommended before in the past that I've I've read a few times. It's called uh, Crucial Conversations. Uh, This is a a great book that will help you have those conversations that you don't want to have, that that turn your stomach on the inside. How am I going to resolve this? This will help you do that because we often know we, we go to have that reconciling conversation. What happens? We've made it worse. Because we said something we didn't mean or we felt angry or we felt hurt and we've made the situation worse. We've added to the fire, unfortunately. Uh, but what's fascinating is this, this entire lengthy book, this is, this is like, how many pages is this? Almost 300 pages, not quite. This is a lengthy book on how to resolve conflict. Actually, at the very beginning of the book, the authors say, actually, the most important thing about resolving conflict is not the tools of resolving conflict. None of, none of this is the most important thing. Let me read you what they say. The determining factor between success and failure is the amount of time that passes between when the problem emerges and when those involved find a way to honestly and respectfully resolve it. What we're suggesting is that the greatest damage to your relationship with your in-laws, funny example, is not due to their occasional interference. It's the toxic emotions and dysfunctional behavior that occurs in the absence of a forthright conversation that causes the greatest damage. Think about teams where it can take weeks, months, or years to honestly address the elephants in the room. What happens in the absence of candid dialogue? Contention, resentment, gamesmanship, poor decisions, body execution, missed opportunities. Uh, At the heart of almost all chronic problems in relationships, teams, organizations, and even nations, are crucial conversations people either don't hold or don't hold well. Decades of research have led us to conclude that you can measure the health of relationships, teams, and organizations by measuring the lag time between when the problems are identified and when they are resolved. The only reliable path to resolving problems is to find the shortest path to effective conversation. Did you guys catch all that? This book is essentially saying 2,000 years later what Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you find yourself in conflict, if you find that someone has something against you, the best thing you can do, leave worship. Do it right away. Do it now. Because that's when you have the best chance at putting the fire out. If a fire is raging, you don't let it keep raging. You go put it out. That's what this book says. That's what Jesus Christ advises us to do. And I think that's why the the Apostle Paul said, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil an opportunity to make this worse. Resolve it. Avoiding it, I think, pretty much always makes it worse. Sometimes you might need time to think about it, calm down, but you need to resolve it right away. I think it's fantastic that our kids in Kids Club, they're learning peacemaking skills right now. 
Our kids need to learn these principles as well. Resolving these conflicts are essential to life in peace. Jesus said, right, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So friends, life is beautiful. Life is a gift. But this life is filled with violence and death all around us. But the source of life, the author of life, he came into this world. And people were angry with him for no reason. They were unjustifiably angry with the author of life. And in their anger, in their jealousy, in their bitterness towards him, they nailed him to that cross. And he let anger do its worst. He let the unjust, the sinful anger of humanity be poured out upon himself. And these people are killing him. Now, I can't even imagine doing this myself. You can put yourself in Jesus' shoes. These people have it all wrong. I am totally innocent. And yet he's praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus did that for you did that for me. He did that for all of humanity. He's the great forgiver. He's the great reconciler. He is the great peacemaker. And now, His Spirit lives in you. His Spirit is in you to go make peace, to go be a peacemaker, to go be a light, to go say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's called us to be light and salt in this world. And so I simply want to ask you, as you process this with the Holy Spirit, what do you need the Prince of Peace to help you do this week? To help you rid yourself of some anger in your heart? To help you guard your words? Whose well-being maybe are you called to promote or protect? Is there anyone the Lord might be calling you to reconcile and have a crucial conversation with? Friends, may the peace of Christ Jesus Rule in your hearts so that you can be his instruments of peace. Let's pray.